I was preaching this stuff in Arrow Park Baptist Church this morning in the north of Liverpool, so there's no excuse uh, for me this evening. Uh, I hadn't been there since 1967. Um, I actually heard the gospel for the first time in my life in that particular church, um, and uh, thankful for that, so it was nice to return. So although we're away, all these pastors are going on holiday, you know, and what happens in church circles is that they get desperate for a preacher. And then they think, well, who's around that we don't normally have? Uh, they, they don't normally have for various reasons. And uh, so, you know, it comes my way and the old codger comes out and, you know, has to try to remember what he's supposed to do. Matthew chapter 11. True rest can only be found in Jesus. Uh, there's a slogan that goes around Christianity, it goes something like this, that Christianity is not about rules, it's about relationship. That is only partly true, of course. In actual fact, it ends up as a distortion of Christianity, if you think about it. I think it would be closer to the truth, I don't want to claim infallibility, but to say that Christianity is being ruled by a relationship that brings us into a full rest with God. An actual fact, therefore, to preserve that rest in our lives, there are rules to follow, or there is at least a lordship to follow. And we'll see all of that come out this evening. So two points, and let's keep this on track. It's 20 to 7. We've got communion yet to come. So here we go. All we need for rest is completely inside Jesus. All we need for rest is completely inside Jesus. That's chapter 11, verses 25 to 30. We get to look inside Jesus here, don't we? And he is under significant pressure. His rescue mission given to him by his father looks a failure. Few people are responding. John the Baptist has come and they've said that he's, he's a demon, verses 16 through 19. Um, Jesus has come almost eating and drinking and they say he's a glutton and a drunkard. And Jesus says, well, we've We've played the flute for you and you haven't danced. And we've played a dirge for you and you haven't mourned. There has been no response at all. And that comes out in verses 20 to 24 where Jesus pronounces woes over these unrepentant cities that he has been missioning in. He has been preaching the word of God to them. He's been performing miracles of all kinds. And yet nobody is responding. And it looks as if it's a failure. And let's be clear also that Jesus has been ruled by his Father in all of this. He's been governed by the Word of God. And he looks as if he's a failure. I think that's rather important, isn't it? Yeah. Jesus is not preoccupied with himself at all. Instead, as we see, he engages in praise to the Father. And as we see him operating in this context, I think we need to see that he's pastoring his own life. The God of rest is living out his own rest when, it, when he's under real pressure. The God of rest is looking away from himself to the rest that his Father uh, provides, even though he may be under significant 
pressure. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. The lack of response was not unexpected, and it is not a failure. Indeed, Jesus is making clear in this verse, there is going to be success. People will come to understand who he is. People will come to realize that through him there is an eternal rest of relationship with God. And so we get to see all that is completely hidden in Jesus for us. Because our need this evening might be a holiday, not against that, and having rest on a holiday or a day off or going for a walk or listening to some music, whatever we rest to emotionally and physically. But our greatest need is our perfect relationship with God the Father that covers us spiritually, emotionally, and ultimately physically. And it's all in Jesus. It is all in Jesus. How do we know that? Well, just focus two things here with, with Jesus in these verses 25 to 30. He underlines the goodness of God, doesn't he? Look at verse uh, 25, 26. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your gracious will. Jesus starts with the Lord of heaven and earth, that God created a very good world full of his goodness, and he was the best of the goodness. And so Adam and Eve rested on God's finished work of creation, and they rested in God's rule and goodwill for them. That's how it was, how it was. That's the rest of God that was over their lives. That was the Sabbath of Genesis chapter 2, right over the whole of their lives, not simply one day. But as human beings, we walked out on God into our deep unrest, and our deep unrest, let's be clear on it, is our desire for self-rule and self-will. Self-rule, self-will. And God, therefore, in his good pleasure, knew that he had to come and deal with that in order that we might be brought back into the good pleasure of his eternal rest of knowing him and living for him at the center of our lives. So we have the goodness of the Father that's driving this. We see the oneness with the Father, which is at the heart of everything. What is the goodness of God being extended towards us in Jesus well, it's this perfect relationship. Listen to it in verse 27. It's rather beautiful, I think. All things have been committed to me by my Father, says Jesus. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Do you see it? The Father sent the Son into the world for what reason? Well, that the Father, the Father could therefore come through to us in the Son and bring us into this joyful, holy, and glorious intimacy that the Father and the Son have always had with each other. Now, that's not always easy to get our heads around, but nonetheless, that's what's here. And we're told that it's the Son's privilege 
to turn round and come to a human being, whether it be in Israel at the time of Jesus or now in the 21st century, and say, I want you to understand who the Father is and our relationship with the Father through me. John chapter 17, the Father The hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he may give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This circle of eternal love is wide open to us. What's the glory of being a Christian? The glory of being a Christian, in essence is that we have access to this circle of love between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the glory of being a Christian. It's wide open to us. But how do we get into this relational circle of eternal love? How do we know the good pleasure of God in Jesus? How can we have this perfect love resting on our souls? Well, we know the answer, don't we? Yes. But how much does it really move us, the answer? That's another story, isn't it? Verses 28 to 30. So well known, aren't they? Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. How do we get in? We come in faith and take all that it, we take Jesus and all that it is in Jesus into our lives. As Calvin says, Jesus has got to get inside us. It means that we need to have a childlike attitude. Children simply receive what is offered to them, don't they? I've got four grandchildren. Uh, well, one's seven, he's getting a bit more savvy now. But the 19th month, I could feed her anything, say anything to her, and she'd believe the lot. Why? Because she's a little child. And children receive stuff. They're such a great example of faith, aren't they? In fact, this is faith. People who live on their own cleverness, who think, if I may say so, that they are so adult, and they've got life so sorted... Do not get in on this. The circle of eternal love is closed to the clever and the people who think they're so wise. Now, I'm not despising anybody's educational background here. That's not the point, is it? The wise and the learned, for example, in Jesus' time, were the Pharisees who thought they really did understand God and get God, but they didn't. Because they didn't get access through Jesus into this relationship. This goodness was hidden from them. So as we pray for our culture and we pray for our communities where there is, I think, a big emphasis on education and being wise and clever and and, and being culturally savvy about life, well, maybe there's some good things in there and I'm not despising it all, But if that's the reliance, then the circle of love is closed to us. You have to come as a child. 
You come, have to come as a burden and broken individual. To be ruled by self and believe that the fullness of life is down to us is therefore to rob us of the richest relationship that we could ever have. We have to come as needy, burdened people. Let's be clear. Until we turn to the Lord Jesus and take his lordship into our lives, then the wrong Lord is bossing our life and is leaving us without eternal rest. It may deliver some form of rest that is temporary and transient and simply an emotional moment, but there is nothing eternal in it. So we have to come as failures. We've broken our own rules. <laughs> well, I have. I've made so many rules up over the years and I've broken them all. And we have broken God's rule because we have not loved him with everything that we have. And we're not turn, going to turn around to religion now, are we? You know, represented in this case by the Pharisees because all they can do is provide rules and rituals that press down on people and never lift them up. So we're not going to turn to religion, are we? I think our culture recognizes that actually, for all its success, it can't deliver perfect rest into people's lives. So I was watching Billie Eilish do her set at Glastonbury. I wasn't at Glastonbury. I was on BBC One. But never mind. Uh, she informed her audience, interestingly, that she had three rules. Rule number one, no judgments. Rule number two, people must not be bad to each other. She used a crude word, but I'm not going to use it. And number three, everyone had to have fun. And yet she recognized that not everyone in her audience would, would, would have fun because she realized that, maybe even including herself, people were wearied and burdened with painful thoughts and experiences. So what was her answer? Her answer was this, that everybody had to shout, scream, jump, and dance. And thousands of people did it. And now, she said, we're ready to have fun. Wouldn't it be great if it was that easy, wouldn't it? We're going to celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus. I don't think God saw that it was an easy thing to deal with the mess of our lives on the internal regions of our soul. Actually, in the Glastonbury Festival, you might think I spent nothing else to do but going to Glastonbury on TV. Well, not quite, but nonetheless, this guy had built a large, I think it was a large lotus flower. And during the festival, people could, and, and the festival's a lawless situation, isn't it? I mean, it really is lawless. There's no rules, they say. They're very proud about that. Anyway, people could write down their troubled thoughts on bits of paper. Then they could climb some stairs, quite tall stairs, to the top where there was a big tube, and they could just drop their bits of paper down through this tube into the loudest flower. And then on the Sunday night, the final night of the, of the festival, all the thoughts would be burnt away. Even our culture is acknowledging that it can't do it. And it's not. We need to rest on the finished work of Christ. We need to rest in his ruling care over our lives. We need to come to Jesus. 
And we need to take Jesus as Lord. The image here of his lordship is a wooden yoke, which uh, is mentioned twice in verses 28 and 30. Uh, maybe it was fitted between two oxen and would yoke them together, an older with a younger. There they are, joined, so the younger would learn from the older. The older was the, the all-important one, and the younger one was now learning in this joining in relationship. This older one was ruling the younger one. You see, if I've understood it, our sin problem involves self-rule and self-will. And now as we have come to Jesus, we take him as our Lord, and we learn to follow Jesus and his will for our life. And as we walk behind Jesus and obey his commands, we discover that we are loved and cared for by the one who knows best. We know the one who is gentle and lowly in heart, especially when we fail. Who do you think is the best boss of your life? Yourself? Myself? Maybe somebody else. Maybe you've got a life coach. I don't know you too well, but maybe you've got a life coach. There's the best boss of your life. They're culturally savvy. They've got it all sorted out. Or so they say. Maybe it's the culture itself all around us is the best boss for our life. Check out what it's saying and then just follow it. Maybe education is the best boss of our life, or so we think. Again, not despising it. Well, the Bible is clear that if we have come to Jesus as, as little children and uh, we have taken him as our Lord, we're joined to him as oxen are joined by this wooden yoke. He's the best boss of our life. Joyful Noise sing a song uh, called Gentle and Lowly, and this is how the opening verse goes. Gentle and lowly, patient and kind, ever approachable, savior of mine. All of my weakness meets your embrace. Failure and sin beats compassion and grace. Wouldn't you follow a Lord like that? Secondly, Jesus' rule brings rest and opposes all oppression. Jesus' rule brings rest and opposes all oppression. That's why we have to go to chapter 12. It will be shorter in chapter 12, I promise you though there's a lot in chapter 12. We have to say there has been a long history that shows the culture and the church have been oppressive and repressive. And that has produced sad suffering for many. And we need to humbly admit that, I think. But let us also be clear that all oppression and all repression is not the outcome of following the rule of Jesus in our lives. No, we're not given the right to become lawless in our lives. That's where the distortion that there are no rules in Christianity is a distortion, isn't it? Jesus has the rule over my life, and therefore he has good rules that govern my life. And, but I do think we need to be daily convinced that the shepherd of Psalm 23 
does do what he says comprehensively in our lives every day through our death and into eternity. And therefore, thank God for chapter 12 and what we see of Jesus on the Sabbath day in the cornfields and in the synagogue. If the Sabbath day pointed away from itself, as our holiday should, and point us to God, the God of rest, and point us to Jesus, the one who establishes rest, if the Sabbath day, which in this case was a Saturday, yes, I know there are debates about Saturday to Sunday and all the other things about that, but we're looking at it in its biggest picture, If that is true, then we need to thank God that Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, protected his people. And he took on the oppressors. The oppressors were the Pharisees who, by the end of this story, will be conspiring to kill Jesus. That's the kind of guys the Pharisees were. They were the oppressive ones in this story, depriving people of God's rest. We know that they had about 150 rules that had to be kept on the Sabbath day, the Saturday, in order to please God. So Jesus is now standing with his disciples and in another occasion with a disabled man and he's standing there and he's opposing all this oppression. He's ruling the Sabbath day, the rest of God as the Lord of that rest. And we discover that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. They're in the field. They're having a picnic. What's wrong with having a picnic? What's, what's, the, what's wrong with eating a few ears of corn? Well, for the Pharisees, if you plucked ears of corn, that was work. And you weren't allowed to work on the Sabbath. So Jesus defends it. Look at him in action. He goes on the offensive, doesn't he? And he says to the Pharisees, well, David came to the tabernacle and he ate some food uh, and he was innocent when he did so, though he wasn't uh, a priest who was allowed access to the bread. And then the priests in the temple, he says, they are innocent and they work on the Sabbath. And right at the heart of that is this wonderful Quote, and if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. The rest of God, this rich relationship, this good pleasure, has at its heart the rich mercy of himself extended towards us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, all oppressive condemnation always comes from a merciless heart. And when I stand in condemnation of others, it's coming from a merciless heart. So you can have a picnic with Jesus. It's a great image, isn't it? And then in the synagogue, there is a healing, verses 9 to 14. A disabled man with a shriveled hand is present at public worship. And the oppressors challenge Jesus about whether it's lawful to heal on the Sabbath. Uh, They did not believe it was lawful. It was a work to heal on the Sabbath. So obviously people had to come back on a Monday. Well, that's not what the Sabbath was all about. If the Sabbath is pointing away to the eternal rest of God until a day of, of physical 
even physical salvation, where our bodies are raised to a beautiful world, clapping its hands. Did you read that at the end of Isaiah 55? If that is the rest that is promised us and secured for us by the Lord Jesus, now risen from the dead, then thank God for such a healing on the Sabbath, and he always healed on the Sabbath, to make the point that the salvation of God in mercy comes into our lives in all its fullness, and the Sabbath day is the most appropriate day to do it. Though I'm sure he did it on a Monday too. And then he gives an example. You know, you've got an animal, he says, and it's fallen into a pit. You, you go and rescue the animal. A person is more valuable than an animal. We're made in the image of God where animals are not. We're made to know God. That's what the eternal Sabbath is all about. Good news, isn't it? To be bossed by Jesus. To come to him and take his yoke. You, can't, you, can't, you see, if you come and you find rest, then you take his yoke into his lordship into your life and you find rest as you do so. And the people that walk away from this situation with no rest in their lives are the Pharisees. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. How blessed it is indeed to be loved by God in the person of his Son. We're in the circle of love, my friends, forever. And not even death can take us out of that circle now. We're going to come around the communion table in a moment. I'm going to lead you in prayer. But I just want to kind of introduce that. We're going to take bread and we're going to take wine. It's just going to remain bread. It's going to remain wine. We're going to eat the bread singularly, uh, individually, because we are saying we are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and we have come to know God in his eternal rest now in our lives. And then we're going to drink communally because we are saying we have come to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's given us this rest relationally. And as broken and burdened community, we are under his lordship. So I say to you, maybe tonight you will come to Christ just as you are in childlike faith. You may be a child and take Jesus into your life and you'll come into the most amazing circle of love. No, you won't be perfect. Yes, you'll have doubts and fears. Yes, there will be feeble faith and, and all kinds of struggles. Yes, I understand that. But you'll come into this circle of love. And you will find rest. That's the promise. And little children receive things, don't they? If you're too wise and you're too learned, then you'll stay outside. But it will be to the impoverishment of your soul. Or as a community and as individuals, 
as we take the wine, we're, we're saying we're, we're, under, we're glad to be under the lordship of Jesus. It's light and it's easy. And I think as we drink together, we should consciously say, yes, Lord, we are your people in the circle of love. And we have this rest already, which one day will be perfected. And that works this way, if I may tell the story, and then I'm done. This is to the glory of a 19-month-old baby. So how does this work, this light and easy lordship for us as individuals and as a community? So I've got a little granddaughter called Erin. She's 19 months old. And, uh, you know, I wheel her about now and again, and, you know, I sing, I growl some songs to her. And one of them is, Jesus' love is very wonderful. So high you can't get over it, so low you can't get around it, so wide you can't get around it. Oh, wonderful love. On this particular occasion uh, in the house, she wanted me to keep on singing this. It was a bit of fun for her. It was a game. I understand that. So we sung this about 20 times. Jesus' love is very wonderful. And she'd do the same thing. I'd sing it. We'd stop. She'd look at me and go, Jesus. Later on that day, I was going into a situation that I had, I had created as a problem. And there was a lot of unrest on my soul, and I'm driving towards that situation. And, uh, you know, uh, a lot of unrest going on. Probably some sinful unrest, too. And I could have chosen to live in that, I think, until a little 19-month-old baby says, Jesus. So now I'm singing, Jesus' love is very wonderful. And now all of this unrest is being swallowed up in the love of God. And I'm free. Because the lordship of Jesus is easy and light. At three o'clock in the morning, Satan is very active. Well, I hope you understand there is a Satan, though I'm a bit concerned about the evangelical church because they seem to have abandoned this idea. But anyway, I still believe the Bible, and therefore Satan is active. And at 3 o'clock in the morning, he is most truly active. And so the same day, 3 o'clock in the morning, my, I wake up, um, and my mind immediately is bombarded with all kinds of rather horrible thoughts, to be honest. And most of them are sinful you don't, you're glad you're not me, aren't you? <laughs> I can see this. And what happens? A little 19-month-old baby girl goes, Jesus. And now, in my head, because I don't want to waken Linda, I growl, Jesus' love is very good, wonderful. And suddenly... All of these other thoughts are beginning to disappear because at three o'clock in the morning, the lordship of Jesus is easy and light. Doesn't always work like that, I want to say. Now let's pray. Take a moment, please, in your own mind and heart. Respond to the Lord Jesus yourself.
Our Heavenly Father, it was your good pleasure to give to us the relationship that you enjoy with your Son, the one that we had lost by our own rebellion. We had opted for our self-rule and our self-will, and we thought it produced salvation, but it didn't. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for many of us in this room that we have come to you and we have discovered your promises true. You have given us rest in our souls. And afresh, we take your Lordship into our lives and discover your rest working even more deeply, even more wonderfully, supernaturally, because we discover that your Lordship is light, and the burden or pressure of it on our lives is easy. Thank you for destroying all oppression and repression that would attack us and bring us into suffering. Thank you, Father, for the ability to remember you in all of this as a community. In Jesus' name, amen.